1: You know, it's going to be hard. It's the hardest thing that we could ever do at times. Why? Because we have to completely deny ourselves.
2: core truth radio a radio ministry of core church los angeles with pastor and bible teacher steve wilburn pastor steve will be teaching the word of god with truth right from the bible for more information go to corechurchla.org that's corechurchla.org today we start our core truth study in the gospel of john chapter 2 I mean, it seems
1: like from the time we were little, there always is someone that's telling us what to do. First, it's our parents. Clean your room. Make your bed. Pick up your socks. Take out the trash. Did you feed the dog? And the list goes on and on. Then, of course, we start going to school. And did you bring your lunch? Did you do your homework? Did you study for your spelling lesson? And then we get a job. Well, did you get to work on time? Did you finish your project? Did you restock the shelves? Can you work overtime this weekend? And the list goes on and on. When we get married, it continues. (laughs) It's like, can you fix this? Did you do the laundry? Did you mow the lawn? Did you do the dishes? Oh, did you go to the grocery store? And again, the list goes on and on. Yes, having to do what we're told, it might not ever end But know this, when it's all said and done, it's important to do what we're told to do. And if we don't, life can be difficult and it can be a difficult place to live in. But when we do all that we are told, We end up staying out of trouble. We end up keeping our jobs and we end up having a better marriage. But on top of all the people that we listen to here on planet Earth, there's one who tops them all. And that, of course, is our gracious Lord Jesus. And, Savior. and when we serve and obey him by doing what he commands us to do, that will cause not only his hand of blessing on our lives in the here and now, but also treasure in heaven one day. That's why we should always do our best in doing what he says for us to do. Well, with that as a backdrop, today, we will consider three points in light of our title, doing as we're told. Number one, an invitation made. An invitation went out for Jesus to go to a wedding. And because he was invited, he ended up going. Number two, we're going to look at an instruction to heed. At the wedding, his mother Mary, seeing that there was a lack of something, so she instructed servants to listen to Jesus. And number three, a miracle to see. Yes, we will see the first miracle that Jesus did as he started his ministry. So let's look at our first point here, an invitation made. And we're going to pick up in John chapter 2. We'll start with verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, this could have been a wedding of a a good friend. It could have been a, a close family member. Who knows? Because Mary's there, and it seems like she's got a little bit of a job to do here at the wedding, so maybe she's kind of coordinating things, but anyway, moving on, she's invited. Jesus is invited. The disciples are invited. Verse three, when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. See, Sometimes mothers just never change, you know, they just get in there and they're going to make sure things happen a certain way. But notice again, verse two says that Jesus was invited to this wedding. I wonder how many of us here that are married have invited Jesus to our wedding, but yet we have not invited him into our marriage. Yes, many have been married in churches of all sizes. Maybe there was even a Bible verse written on their invitation. Yet in the culture that we live in, We see the heartbreak and the misery of so many broken marriages. Those that have chosen divorce over working through the tough and difficult times, leaving children torn between two parents. Two parents who, by the way, at one point stood before family and friends, all in the presence of God, and they made vows of commitment and love to each other. They coupled those vows with promises of goodwill and faith that were all sealed by the giving of rings. As they said to each other, with tears running down their faces, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, and sickness and in health, until death do us parts. Yet somehow that was all forgotten and lost as lawyers stepped in, drawing up papers of divorce that simply stated irreconcilable differences. When you see that term, irreconcilable differences, what that really means is two people that are unwilling to work on their marriage any longer. It's two people that are unwilling to serve one another any longer. It's two people that are unwilling to bend from their own personal way and putting what they want first. They're unwilling to bend from that anymore. That's all that irreconcilable differences means. I'm sorry, but that, just so you know, is not a biblical option that God gives to you and to me. There are reasons for divorce in the Bible. He does give us uh, some reasons. One of those reasons is in the act of adultery, where one of the spouses will have sexual relations with someone that is not your spouse. But even when that happens, God would still rather see a sincere repentance of the offender and forgiveness and restoration so that that family unit could be saved. But why? Because the Bible says that God hates divorce. He hates it. There's not too many things in the Bible that he just flat out says, I hate this, but that's one of them. He hates divorce. Understand, we are to love our spouses in the same way that God loves us. So God is saying to us, I want you to love your spouse like I loved you. Okay, so God's not asking you or me to do anything that he didn't already do for us. And let's not forget, when God says that he loves us, let's just remind ourselves, we are no day at the beach, okay? Sometimes we are, sometimes we're the the most lovely person to be around. You should be around me because I'm lovely. And then there's other days that we're stinky, Okay? And that we have bad attitudes. And we, we are not nice to be around. Yet God still loves us with his unconditional love. Meaning when we're walking with him in total obedience, he loves us. But yet at the same time, when we derail from him and we do something that's really awful and we can still have that relationship where we can go back to him and we can still seek his forgiveness or no matter what we've done for God has promised to forgive us. And that's a sweet feeling that can overcome the horrendous guilt and condemnation that comes on us for what horrible thing we've done. Because those horrible things that we do, as you know, they can ravage our own souls. Yes, when we feel like there's nowhere else to turn. When hope seems to have completely run out and condemnation sets in from the devil, how could God love you? How could he even forgive you for what you've done? You're a horrible person. You should no longer go to church. Oh, yeah, you're right, devil. I'm just a wretch. You know, it's like, and we agree with him, but yet God still, when we come to him, will forgive us. Yes, when we feel like there's nowhere else to turn, when hope seems to have completely run out and that condemnation sets in that's when God will wrap his arms of everlasting love around us and his forgiveness sets us free from the guilt that torments us inside the shame that causes us so much mental anguish. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had God's forgiveness come in when I have felt like that for horrible things that I've done in my life at different times. And it is just the best thing ever to be able to go and come away from the Lord and feel refreshed once again. But in the same way, we are to love our spouses like he loves us. And again, what is that love that God loves us with? It comes from the Greek word agape. And that word agape means an unconditional love. That's a love that expects nothing in return. If we refuse to do this, and we refuse to forgive our spouses, then Jesus said this to us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew chapter six, verse 14, he says, if you forgive men, for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive men when your your heavenly Father will not forgive you of your transgressions. What he's saying there is like, look, even if someone out on the street, uh, a co-worker, or your next door neighbor offends you, it's like, and he comes to you and seeks your forgiveness, you need to forgive him. Why? Because God has forgiven us of the things that we've done. Well, if we're supposed to do that to any Joe Blow, nothing against you, Joe, but anyway, I guess, you know, anyone out on the street, how much more should we be forgiving our own spouse that we become one in the flesh with. It's like we're supposed to forgive them. So God is saying, look, if you can't forgive them, I'm not going to forgive you. How about that? Wow. So I'm not saying that this is easy, of course. That's like asking if there's any fat grams in Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay? You know, it's like, of course there is, you know? And it's not going to be easy. You know, it's going to be hard. It's the hardest thing that we could ever do at times. Why? Because we have to completely deny ourselves. Have you ever seen an old couple walking together? You know, like I'm talking old couple. I'm talking like people in their 80s or 90s, and they're still madly in love with each other. And they're hand in hand and they look into each other's eyes and maybe you see them out eating and they're just talking and conversing with one another. How in the world do you make that happen? How can you stay married for 50, 60, 70 years and still be filled with joy? How is that even possible? Well, I'll tell you how it's possible because it costs something. What does it cost? It costs everything, everything. Everything. It's like you have to deny yourself. You have to lift up the other person. You have to turn the other way. That's why Benjamin Franklin, when he he said, before you get married, have your eyes wide open. After you get married, have them half closed, okay? (laughs) And learn to pick what battles you have. You have to let things slide. You have to just like say like, never mind. Hey, what are you doing? Nah, never mind you just have to let things go I remember you know look I haven't been married for 60 70 or 80 years but I have been married for 40 years and I can say this that when I first got married I don't think I even had a concept of what love was I think I really liked my wife. (laughs) It's like, I would have told you I loved her back then, but I didn't know what love was. It's like, I don't think you can really understand it until you've been with someone for a very long time. And it's like, now I can look at my wife and say, wow, I really love my wife. And it's like, I started with that woman. I'm going to finish with that woman. And it's like, I just, yeah, it's so easy to not have a comprehension level of what love is. And so when you have those hard times in marriage, especially in the first 10 years, the first 10 years can be very, very difficult at times, but you got to, you got to work through those. You got to go through those valleys. You got to climb out of those trenches that you fall into because it's worth it in the long run. And here's another thing, by the way, if you don't, deal with those issues and you choose to walk away from that marriage. Guess what? You're in the next marriage you get into. It's going to be the same problem. Why? Because you're in it. Okay. And you took your problems into the new marriage. And you're going to say, this woman turned out to be as bad as my first wife. Maybe you caused it. Okay, maybe there's something that you're doing. And if you're not willing to work those problems out, they're just gonna come back and haunt you somewhere in the future. Yes. When we invite, though, the creator God, the one who created marriage to be part of our marriage, not just invited him to the wedding, but to invite him into your marriage, then it only stands to reason that when all the storms of life hit that marriage and the hard times arise within the marriage, that that marriage... That has been founded and built upon the rock of Christ Jesus will stand the test of time. This is why it's so important for those who are single to never become unequally yoked with a non-believer. That means that you are never to date a non-believer. Let me just ask you that are single here. Don't raise your hand. But if you're single, are you dating someone who is not of the Christian faith, who is truly walking with the Lord? I can tell you this right now. You are completely outside of God's will. And you're thinking, how could you possibly say that? You arrogant preacher, you. It's like, well, the reason I can say that is because all throughout the Old Testament, God had warned his people, do not, I repeat, do not, you know, intermingle with the other other tribes around you he was talking about those who were not walking with the Lord he wasn't talking about people from other tribes that came to know the Lord because you remember Ruth she was a Moabitess and she ended up marrying Boaz okay so she was not of the Jewish faith and yet she married Boaz and she ended up becoming the grandmother of, of King David who was in the bloodline of the Messiah Savior to be born so it wasn't that, you know, you couldn't be, uh, quote, just Jewish. It was like you had to be a believer and follower of the Lord. Yes, we must only date someone who has an active and a real and a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's why God is very consistent throughout the entire Old Testament, commanding his people never again to be involved with those that are outside the faith. Now, some might ask again, now, I, I don't understand why. Because how can we expect to walk through this life in harmony with someone else if at the very core of their heart, their very moral fiber is at odds with us on what is right and what is wrong. If we are at odds morally, how then could we ever pursue God's perfect will for our lives and not just our lives, but if we have children together, raising our children, how they're going to be raised, that there is one God and that we serve him. If our mate is going in a complete opposite direction of us, it is not going to work. And all of this love that we love one another, you're going to find out after the honeymoon's over that that love is not going to carry you through this issue of faith. My daughters, I had three of them, as they were growing up, I used to tell them, you know, oh, honey, when you get married one day to your Christian man, but I just stopped saying that after a while, because you see so many slack jaws that call themselves Christians. It's like, this guy's not a Christian. You know, they say they're a Christian, but that's why some of these polls that we have, the Gallup poll, the Pew poll, you know, and what have you, will say 72 to 83% of Americans claim to be Christian. I can promise you this three quarters of America is not Christian, okay? So those numbers are blown up because some people just think "Um, I live in America. I love apple pie. You know, um, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. No, you're not a Christian. It's like saying if you walk into a garage, it makes you a car. You are not a car. You're still a person, okay? If you walk into In-N-Out, you know, you, know, you walk in there, it doesn't make you a double-double. It just means you're there to eat a double-double, okay? But anyway, uh, the point is this. I had to start telling my girls, even as they were just four or five and six years old, when you get... Older one day, and you get married to the Christian man who loves Jesus more than he loves you. And he reads his Bible, and he prays, and he's a truly godly man. That's the man for you. And so I had to explain it a little bit more. And that's really the key for those of you that are single. Find someone who loves Jesus more than they love you. That's the keeper. Trust me, that's the keeper. And for those of you here that are married to an unbeliever, God has made you now... Uh, a missionary, and your mission field is your spouse, okay? Because some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second, I'm married to a pagan. Do I drop the pagan now? You know, it's like, no. No, you married them, and if you came to faith afterwards, you know, God still honors that covenant of marriage. So no, you're to stay in that marriage, but you are to do everything you can to live as a true Christian, and hopefully, by your changed life, they too will come into a relationship with Christ. Yes, we should all invite Jesus. This is the bottom line into every aspect of our lives. We need to invite Jesus into our marriage, into our families, into our work, to our social and personal playtime. Everything that we do, Jesus should be part of that. And by the way, I just want to point this out again. We have a full staff of pastors here and we are able to do marriage counseling in your lives. Don't wait till you're ready to kill each other to come in. Because that's the problem that many married couples have. We'll work it out. We'll work it out. And they keep putting issues off and sweeping them under the carpet. And after a while, you got a big old lump in your living room. What's under the carpet there? All of our problems. And it's like, and it's really hard. So a lot of times by the time the marriage counseling comes into us, you know, they're ready to claw each other's eyes out. And it's like, wow, you know, we really needed you in here like two years ago. See, come in when the problems are just arising. Don't allow the molehills to turn into mountains here in your life. Well, with that said, uh, it brings up our second point, an instruction to heed. Now, this is instruction that was given by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it was brought on by an unexpected problem here at this wedding. And what was the problem? They ran out of wine way early. Now, maybe because, you know, this weddings here, you know, are huge events. They were huge. They're huge events today. They were huge events back here in the day of Jesus. But in this culture, especially wine was an essential part of the wedding. So, you know, not so the guests would just get slammed and drunk and whatever. No, but rather it was a symbol of enjoyment and celebration. Yet they ran out of wine. Maybe more people turned out than what they expected. Because, you know, back in this day, people would just come and, you know, people just knew. And, you know, the cities were smaller, the villages were smaller, and people would just come and they would show up. So maybe... A lot more people came than what they were expected. You know, and again, here, in the Jewish mindset, wine represented joy. And without wine, this wedding could be seen as a wedding with no joy, and nobody wants that. So Mary who has held in her heart what the angel Gabriel had shared with her 30 years earlier, that she was the woman, the virgin of Isaiah's prophecy that would carry the Savior of the world in her womb, was now acting like a mother on a mission to help jumpstart the ministry of Jesus. Well, as you know, Jesus didn't need Mary's help to get his ministry jump-started. So he looks at his mother and he says to her, woman, okay, understand this was not being disrespectful to his mother, but rather it was a distancing of himself from her. Was she his mother? Well, yes. She bore him out of her womb. So in Jesus' humanity, she was definitely his mother. But Jesus was not just a man. He was also God in human form. And Mary was not the mother of God. So this term that he uses here, woman, would be the equivalent of in the English language of him saying, excuse me, ma'am. Jesus was saying to his mother, what I am, you know, what am I going to do with you, mom? Can you back off a little bit here? I don't need you to jumpstart my ministry, okay? I have a plan. I don't need your help in this, you know, jumpstarting this ministry. And, you know, in time, everyone's going to know who I really am. Yet, like most mothers, she doesn't listen to a word of that, okay? Mary doesn't miss even a beat here as she looks at the eyes, into the eyes of the servants that were standing by, and she says to those servants, she says, Listen here, young men, whatever he says for you to do, do it. So it almost seems like Mary's part of the wedding coordination here of this wedding here. So maybe it was a family member, but she says... Whatever he says to you to do, you do it. This term, do it, is an action term. You know, it's not something that just Nike came up with, just do it, okay? This comes out of the Bible. And in the original uh, Greek language here, she is simply saying, whatever he says for you to do, you better make it happen. Make it happen. Wow. Could you consider for just a second, like, I wonder how many of our lives, those of us that are here today, how our lives could radically change if we simply would do the same. If you and I could just grasp onto what Mary said, let's listen to it again. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Oh, how our lives would be turned upside down, all for the better.
2: That's all the time we have for this message, but join us next time for part two as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. Thanks for joining us for Core Truth Radio. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilburn of Core Church Los Angeles. If you'd like to hear more messages by Pastor Steve, download the Core Church Los Angeles free app, available on iOS and Android. Core Church is sponsored by an a listener-supported outreach of Core Church LA. If you have been blessed by this program, consider supporting our radio ministry by texting Core Church LA to 77977. You can also give via our app and online at corechurchla.org. And remember, there's a God in heaven who loves you.